Hello. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And Tablet Senior Writer Leah Leibowitz. Marhaba. And two great interviews this week. We are talking with Andrew Rafeld, the new president of Hebrew Union College, the premier training ground for American Reform rabbis. And we're talking with Gentile of the Week, G-O-T-W, Ed Gaskin, who is this charming and interesting gentleman who began attending Shabbat services after the Pittsburgh shooting to give solidarity to the local Jewish community, though he is not a Jew. And he never stopped. He's still a Shabbos observant synagogue attending Gentile. He's now attended more Shabbat services than 98% of all American Jews collectively. Uh, So a really nifty show for you this week. But first, we got to catch up because we have not been, you know, Stephanie was on the slopes. Liel was in his Liel cave. I don't know where I was, but we have not been together in Argo Studios since the last waning gibbous full moon or something since Shvat since the other Rosh Chodesh yeah, yeah. I don't even know by the way happy uh, Rosh Chodesh to you well, both thank you. oh thank you I was w- wondering why you hadn't said that yet I was in shul the other day and they did the Yom Yom Yibbi that's, that's a commitment that like, is that to like when you say rabbit rabbit, rabbit on it, the first day of the month they right. do they <laughs> say rabbit rabbit <laughs> in Hebrew and sometimes do you, do you sometimes get a halal on Rosh Chodesh not sometimes but always are you sure so yeah, I missed then, it the Hatsi Halal so this month hasn't officially started the Hatsi Halal because I was I must have been in children's services during the half Hallel. Okay, what day. if it's like Groundhog's Day, the movie, but you keep waking up on Rosh Hodesh? <laughs> then services are always longer. Exactly. Then you're praying for seven hours every morning. It's a morning. great movie. You'd never, ever, ever leave Starring Shul. Bill Murray. <laughs> if Bill Murray were the as cantor. Bill Murray. As, as a reform <laughs> rabbi who wakes up every day in Cincinnati. The thing is, the Ben Stiller character in Keeping the Faith was kind of comedian as reform rabbi. Right. That's, that was a, that's such a good movie. So I feel good. like we don't really? talk about it enough. You know what? A hundred percent. One of Wait, the most right. underrated movies. We all agree on that? Yes. yes, yes it's so good. You and know Jenna that the Elfman. cantor the cantor in the movie is Cantor Frieder from Temple Israel of Greatness. Right. So like my my childhood cantor is in the movie. <laughs> and you're like, what is happening? Now my shul does a pretty vibrant in Kelohenu at the no, end, nothing but I like always that. think of the Aid Kelohenu, the gospel <laughs> choir, and keeping the You know what we should do? Instead of a book club, which is for nerds, let's do a movie club. Let's all watch All the J. Crew, get together, pick a day, okay. and watch Keeping uh, the Faith. It's great. Well, no, let's do it by next week. By next week. I'm next busy. week. J. Crew, you have homework. You have homework. If watch you haven't seen Keeping movie. the Faith, go watch it. In Kelohenu. Ed Norton and Ben Stiller and Jenna El- and Scientologist Jenna Elfman. Pre, pre. <laughs> and then um, we will discuss. And All if of the world's it, major religions are again. represented. And you know what? I'm going to make my kids watch it with me because, you know, in, in terms of their cultural education, Keeping the Faith is one of the great Jew movies of all time. Ever. And it ends with a great reveal at the end, which we're not going to. We're not going to ruin for you. I don't even remember what it it's, was. So I'm going to have such a good time. Not going to ruin it for you. <laughs> anyway, Stephanie, let's go around the shoe and we're going to go counterclockwise. Stephanie. So I have some fun news. I did an event at the 92nd Street Y. So I have some fun news. I did an event about Dr. Mengele no, and no, the no. Holocaust at the 92nd event, Street Y. But Dr. Ruth was there because she knows the author of the book. And so they sold both of our books afterwards. And I said, Dr. Ruth. You know, you're in this one as she goes to buy the other one. Um, and so she bought a copy and I signed it for her. So I, that was the first time I have signed a book for someone who has an entry in the book. Did you sign it to my hero? I wrote to Dr. Ruth, this book wouldn't be the same without you. Heart <laughs> that's Stefani. Even better than the fact that Shalom Aleichem's granddaughter 
came up and bought a book from me and Liel in the Westport Library, which we wow. never talked about. True that. Or at least she claimed to be. <laughs> Anyone could claim to be that. By the way, you know that Will Smith movie that was it called Six Degrees, like the one that he yeah, cons yeah. everyone to think he's Sidney Poitier's son. Yeah. Like what a great Wait, con. That movie exists? Yeah. yeah they so made a movie. play and everything, right? Well, they made a, it was a movie version of John Guar's play, right? What a great con. I'm not saying that this woman isn't legit, but what a great con would it be to be like, you heard of Shalom Aleichem? Yeah, I'm his great granddaughter. <laughs> Just go to, at every, it would be a con for a very specific. Right. How could you, how could you, you know, do you know you'd lumbered parrots? Yeah, well, I'm his <laughs> grandniece. <laughs> I'd be singer of the singer sewing machines. That's right. All right. Anyone else have news besides I, Dr. Ruth? So I do. And I'm going to poach the news of the Jews. This was going to be a news of the Jews item, but you're going to see why I'm pulling it into personal banter. This is a, a great confluence for those of you who follow the Holocaust, young, and adult, who doesn't? young adult literature, the British royals, and the Oppenheimers. I mean, every listener of the show, in <laughs> other words. This is the news event for you. Okay. First of all, we learned from People Magazine that Princess Kate and Prince William have been talking about the Holocaust with the little future King George. I'm going to quote from People magazine. Kate Middleton revealed that she and Prince William have told their children about the Holocaust. She revealed this at the Holocaust Memorial Day service in London on Monday. The royal mom, 38, was talking to Holocaust survivor Mala Tribich at the reception, commemorating the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. And after the deeply moving ceremony, she said, we are talking to the children about it earlier today, but we have to be, you know, for a six-year-old, the interpretation, the royal added, suggesting that she had to choose her words carefully to explain the mass murder of six million Jews by the Nazis to Prince George, the oldest of their three children. OK, end quote. Right. So first of all, appreciate the snark from People magazine saying that, that Princess Kate had to choose her words lightly when discussing mass murder with a six year old. So I was talking to Sid last night just before we finished watching Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which is the best show I've ever seen. Really? I keep um, it's seeing un- ads for that on text. It, it was TV. made for me. It was like dumb sitcom meets great playlist. It was made for me. <laughs> so as we were about to fire up the last 10 minutes of it, I said to Sid, I was like, can you believe they're talking about the- it's so nice that they're trying to be culturally sensitive, telling their little six year old. Church of England future king boy about the Holocaust. But frankly, someone should tell them, like maybe a professional Jew like me should tell them, you don't have to tell a six-year-old. I mean, our kids maybe learn about it when they're nine, 10, 11, but like six, like little Anna, we have a six-year-old. She doesn't know jack squat about oh, the Holocaust. Going, but they're going full Israel. Like well, in Israel, you start like at three. At the, right, right. Yeah. But then Sid says to me, she's like, oh, you think Anna doesn't know about the Holocaust? Have you noticed the book that she's been reading and rereading and rereading? And I was like, you mean White Bird by that that lady who wrote Wonder, Palaccio, and Sid said, yeah. And I said, "Um, yeah, it's like about a bird, right? And Sid said, oh, no, no, it's all about the Holocaust, which is why today we pulled up in front of Neighborhood Music School and Anna hopped out and like put her hand up in the air and said, hail Hitler. I said, wait a second. You mean to tell me that today- (laughs) My gorgeous, blonde, Aryan-looking six-year-old. On Audubon Street, New Haven, we're like all, it's like the coffee shop, the music school, across the street from the high school, like every family in our social circle, everyone we know in New Haven is like coming and going and picking up and dropping off. And Anna hops out, little blonde, green-eyed Anna hops out and and says, Hail Hitler. Hail Hitler is a great like remix of Heil Hitler. Not Heil. Not Heil. Hail. And I said, well, I guess we should have had the- Princess Kate <laughs> right. conversation with her. Hey, uh, Princess Kate, what do I say to a six-year-old again? Because <laughs> we seem to be very confused. Because we totally dropped the ball that she has no idea that Hitler's not the good Although, guy. I have to say, like, for them, for the royals, it's really easy because all they have to do is, like, go talk to Uncle Harry who likes to dress up, as, up as Hitler, right? No, but we talked to Jonathan Sachs who had to, like, give Harry the talking to after that. So maybe they could just call up their, like, Jewish now advisor. Now seeking applicants for chief rabbi of England. Preach to an ever-shrinking community of Jews 
from time to time do Holocaust education with ignorant royals. So I also have some fascinating item in the news that I've been obsessing over these last couple of days, which is the fact that the president of the United States of America is pushing forward some plan for peace or whatever. And he has a problem, an innate problem, which is there is no leader to the state of Israel. One might say there's no partner for peace. Correct. And so instead of inviting Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and saying, hey, like, I'd like to discuss this, he now also has to invite Benny Gantz, who's the other person running for that office and is tied. So it would be like if in 2016 Hillary and Trump went to a country to, to, to hear something. No, but he, Right. But here's the amazing thing. So they're both in D.C. They're both meeting in Trump this week. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. So listen, here's the plot, right? So there's this orange jock who doesn't know if he wants to choose the sort of rich and dark and cunning one or the sort of innocent and simple and good-hearted one. It's pretty pink. Basically, the plot of every Archie comics, <laughs> right? He's Archie, BB's Veronica, Gantz is Betty, and it's just like really weird Betty love Gantz. Triangle. Betty, Betty Gantz. <laughs> It's great. Wow. It's Who's so mind-blowing. Uh, Kushner, Jared Head. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's fantastic. We're literally Riverdaling it right now. My question is, when in a foreign country are Benny and Bibi actually like, eh, let us go for a jog? Like, are they, you know, Spe- a fellow Israeli? Speaking that, funny you should say that, speaking of jogs. So Benny Gantz was, quote, unquote, unquote, caught by reporters <laughs> jogging in D.C. Looking like designer. Shirt, shirtless. Designer, like, you know, tracksuit looking at all like sweaty and vibrant. It's like, oh, you're here? Oh, I didn't know. Oh, oh, you mean like 700 reporters who came on my plane and were just like three steps behind me? Oh, well, hi. Hi. Well, that is news of the Jews, but it's not the only news of the Jews. Let's N-O-T-J. Let us catch you up. Josh, would you please compose an N-O-T-J like blamp? News of the Jews. First of all, from Israelis in America to Americans in Israel, Quentin Tarantino hanging out a lot in Tel Aviv, according to the trades. Uh, as we know, he's married to Israeli singer, model, spokesmodel, celebutante. I don't know what she is. But exactly that. <laughs> you got it just right. Daniela Pick, uh, who's expecting their first child. And he's been saying that he doesn't just feel at home in Tel Aviv. It really is his home now. So the kids, like 18 years from now, when we're still doing this podcast, their kid will be in the Israeli army. Yes, 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 he would. Yes, he will. All right, well, good. Prime Minister of Israel, Shimon Tarantino. Shimon. <laughs> no, How no, great no. would that be? As Hollywood royalty, they, they're going to pick, they're going to name their kid like Kumquat. I mean, yeah, Kumquat Tarantino. Shlomo Tarantino. Uh, the New York Times reported that that vaccine bill that was supposed to end religious exemptions for vaccines in New Jersey, uh, which went down to defeat because of anti-vaccine extremists, apparently some of the big lobbyists who helped defeat it were, in fact, our ultra-Orthodox friends. Uh, Agudith Israel of America lobbied against this one and helped bring it down. And I just want to say to my friends in Agudith Israel of America, um, sad, sad. Don't do that. Don't 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 be fighting back. So you're suggesting everyone who supported this bill gets a one way trip to Wuhan, China, right now. <laughs> That's right. Like you don't like vaccines? Like, well, we got a place for you. <laughs> no more New Jersey or Staten Island or Brooklyn for you. But then on to the very very big news of the Jews. Uh, looking increasingly possible that Bernie Sanders could be the Democratic nominee for president, which means he'd also be the first Jewish Democratic nominee for president, which means he could in fact be the first Jewish president, and he's 
he's leaning into it. He released a video ad on Twitter this week that's basically, it's like four minutes long, and it's his Jew surrogate, Joel Rubin. I'm Jewish! Did you know I'm Jewish? I'm very Jewish! Be like, really? <laughs> so it plays some tape of him giving a speech at, uh, at the J Street convention. Very proud to be Jewish. And look forward to being the first Jewish president this week. And then it has his Jew surrogate, Joel Rubin, his director of Jewish outreach, which, by the way, is a gig. I can't believe none of us has ever been approached. Like, Booty Judge, you don't want to hire one of us to right. be your, your I Jew. I because you call him that. Booty <laughs> I will say Michael Bennett. You don't need say, a Jewish. I, just, I will say Marion Williamson reached out to me psychically in a, in a yoga trance Vedic dream, and I said yes, but never heard back. She was going to pay you in good vibes in crystals. In crystals. <laughs> so here's my question: Bernie is now trying to say, "Look, I want to represent my Judaism. I have Jewish pride. I will be not just a Jew who happens to be president, but the first Jewish please president Polish." Right. As he famously said. Did he once say that? He did. He once described himself as Polish. And for Polish Jews, that's actually a very – Polish Gentiles say Polish. Polish Jews say Polish Jew. But that was last That was last go round. So things have – you know, did not work he, out for him last like time. It like he had a chance of doing this. That's like those incredibly creepy obituaries that sometimes run in the Times about like Moritz Goldenstein, furrier to the stars – who came to America from Minsk, right. born to Russian parentage, and it just never says Jew. And you that's you're really intentionally We're not, really playing this game now. We're really playing this game now. So here's the thing is, you know, Bernie and Bloomy and Michael Bloomberg both who also gave an amazing speech about his own Judaism. Oh, did he? Uh, Same yes. Day. So he had Mike Quoting in Miami's events. Mike in Miami. <laughs> he went to Miami, and I actually think that it seems, you know, the cynic in me sees that Bloomberg is actually leaning into his Judaism. And then Bernie is too. And so I wonder if the presence of a Bloomberg in the race and the possibility that Bloomberg could take this pretty far is actually pushing Bernie to now be like, I too am Jewish. I mean, Bloomberg's speech not only quoted the weekly Parsha, which was amazing in of itself, but also said, and I'll be the Jewish candidate who doesn't want to turn America into a kibbutz. Right. I'm like, oh, sick burn. And, you know, Mike in Miami. It's funny. He's doing these bagels with Bloomberg events. And I'm like, you know what? You got me. You got me with bagels. There you go. I mean, bagels with Bernie. Here's the thing. I mean, I think I'm not the only Jew in America who's thinking, look, obviously, if one of these guys ends up president, it says something about about anti-Semitism in America, which is it's not as bad as it once. If a Jew can be president, obviously, there's a critical mass of people who don't care that it's Bernie from Brooklyn or that it's Bloomberg from Medford, Mass, then Upper East Side. I mean, it obviously says that Judaism is something that people can deal with, which is is kind of a win, right? There was probably not going to be a Jewish president in 1900 or even in 1950. So that's kind of a win. On the other hand, you're talking about two people who just have, to be perfectly frank, not exactly stayed close to the Jewish community in any of the meaningful ways that you could, right? right? So for some people, that way would be like observance, would be actually participating in Jewish ritual. These are two people who are not synagogue goers. These are p- two people who did not raise their children Jewish, who didn't have Jewish spouses, Jewish home lives. They're also people who have not spent a lot of time. I mean, Bloomberg's philanthropy, he did endow his childhood synagogue. He renamed it after his parents. The conservative synagogue in Medford, Mass. is now like the Bloomberg Jewish Community Center, uh, but it, they're, they're old shul. But they're not people whose philanthropy, whose issues in Congress, if it's Bernie, whose anything has had anything to do with the Jews. They are two people who basically happen to be Jewish. And for the first Jewish president or Jewish nominee from one party right. to be this guy, like he he bears the Jewish last name. He grew up with a little of it 60 years ago and then not, never, not ever cared that. again. I feel exactly the same way. And, and I feel not just that, but like it's actually these two weird archetypes, right? It's like the uncle who like eats all the eggs at the Seder and then like says some ridiculous shit and you can't really abide by it, but you don't 
have that Bloomberg? Many, no, that's right. <laughs> you don't. Re, it doesn't really matter because you only see him. He's like your Uncle Myron at the Seder, right? It's Uncle Myron, and then it's like. The Bloomberg is like the head of the UGA Federation. Like, you know, he does something important in the community. You don't really know what he does in the community. Right. You stand next to him in a party. And he wears like, nice suits. Right. He's like, has, he gives. He uses terms like APR and ROI, and you don't understand <laughs> any of them, and you're like, not politely when you talk to him. Like, what you want is a Chabad Khana running in this race, right? You want someone who's like, come for Shabbat. Like, we're going to have fun. We're going to talk. We're going to feel like real Hamisha. And neither of them is that. But I will say, the interesting thing is that they do represent the majority of the American Jews that I think I know who have the Jewishness, right? Like you hear Bernie, you're you're assaulted by the Jewishness of his by, voice. By which you mean is just that he has a Brooklyn accent. Totally. We mean uh, nothing other and, than that and, he grew up totally, totally. in a loud voice. Totally. And, loud and, voice. Yeah. and Larry David plays him on Saturday Night Live. Exactly. But the funny thing is like the people who hate Bernie don't hate him because he's Jewish. They hate him because of his politics. Which is a win for the Jews that they don't hate him because he's Jewish. Yes, yes. yes. And, and I think Bloomberg, I mean, there was that Saturday Night Live bit where it was like, what are they going to say about me? I'm, I'm like a short Jew who runs a media company. Like, So I think he's a little bit more subject to the stereotypes, but also because his politics are a little less identifiably unpleasant to a lot of, honestly, to a lot like, of those people. I think this podcast was started for the kind of explicit reason of getting past precisely these stereotypes that these men represent, right? To show that there is life, there's a Jewish life outside of these. So here's the thing, right? Which is we are still, and you know, when I talk to, it's often people on the left who are saying, oh, the, the conservative Jews always overplay the anti-Semitism out there in American culture. It's really not that bad. And, and it's really, it's other people of color who are really suffer the anti-Semitism or the LGBT community or whatever. And I want to say all of those communities also suffer, but keep in mind, there's still a lot of anti-Semitism in America. And they say, how is that possible? Jews are in the Senate, Jews are in... And I say, look, those are all Jews who are passing as white. And here's what I mean by this. And I've made this point before. We have never, ever, ever, ever had a Jew rise up in national politics, except like the occasional representative from a heavily Jewish district in... In Brooklyn becoming an assemblyman in New York State. We've never had a congressman, a senator, a presidential candidate who looks Jewish to the average person on the street, who wears a yarmulke, who dresses in special Shabbat wear, who has a wife who's wearing a wig, who's looking ethnic in that way. And when Joe Lieberman was running for president, you never you there's no photograph on Google of Joe right. Lieberman in a yarmulke. There are more photographs of Barack Obama wearing a yarmulke on Google Images than Joe Lieberman. Yeah, that this guy is loves someone, a yarmulke. This is someone who literally got by by being like a blonde non-yarmulke wearing senator from a very Protestant and Catholic state. And we don't have an example of someone who co who reads Jewish ethnically and or religiously rising up in national. Which is why we call right now Gal Gadot. Put on your kichel Wait, she's Jewish? and run. <laughs> for office. <laughs> the interesting thing, though, is Joe Lieberman can play like the faith card. Like, remember Eric Cantor from Virginia, who for a long time we thought was going to be like the next big Republican Jewish leader. He would speak about his Jewishness in the Christian way, right? He right. would speak about his faith, which I'm is gonna something go that Jews I'm going to go fellowship. fellowship. He fellowship. He fellowship. And you're like, that actually is for a long time, that seemed to be the model of Jewishness that was palatable to the larger community. So right. I'm curious. Forget what I think about Bernie's politics. I just love the fact that if he indeed is the nominee, every time I see him speak, I will hear in the background, dun 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 Curb your enthusiasm. Oh, the enthusiasm. Yeah. It'll be the best thing ever. Like every campaign speech, like dun 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 dun. Can I read a Twitter thread that my friend and our friend Gavi Savitt Woods sent us? So I was when I was reading about these two about Bloomberg and Bernie and like and thinking, well, yeah, they're Jews, but I mean, why would it not feel like such a win for one of them to be president in in our super chauvinist ethnocentric way? And you know, Gavi sent me this Twitter thread by a guy he knows uh, who lives in Ann Arbor now about sort of doing Jewish. And I just I just want to read a little bit of it. This is a guy named Michael Weiss. He 
said, a useful reminder from Rabbi Harold Kushner, there are only two kinds of Jews, serious Jews and non-serious. You can find both kinds among Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, Atheist, Intermarried. Amen. The crucial question for all of them is, how would your life be different in day-to-day terms if you were not Jewish? Serious Jews can answer that question because their lives are filled with Jewishness. For some, Judaism dictates what they eat, where they eat, what kind of clothes they wear. For others, it just informs the books and websites they read, the activities they participate in. This isn't serious equaling religious. Some of the most serious Jews can be atheists. But on the other side are plenty of people who could not honestly answer the question, how would your life be different in day-to-day terms if you were not Jewish? Some of these Jews feel very Jewish. Their cultural identity is important to them. But an impartial observer would be unable to distinguish anything different about how they live their lives from that of the Christian hegemony they live in. And I think that's exactly right. Like, what about how Bloomberg and Bernie live is in any way Jewish? Are they reading Jewish books? Are they even going to the Jewish Film Festival at the JC? I don't think they are. I think that basically they put on this this surrogate, Joel Rubin, on Bernie's video to say he believes in tikkun olam. If all you can say is you want social justice, you're just an NPR listener. You're not a Jew. <laughs> then he's your free toe Also, back we have to examine to the New York Jewish, the Brooklyn Jewish connection that is sort of seared in all of our minds and what that actually means. Yeah. It just means... It looks like it's going to be a fun 2020, guys. we got <laughs> just, a few more months of this. Just I hope you're... Ride. <laughs> you know what it means? It means they're going to yell at me if I toast my goddamn bagel. It just means they're going to be bagel snobs. Bagels for Bloomberg. Our Jewish guest this week is Andrew Rayfeld. He is the 10th president of Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, which is the reform movement's rabbinic seminary and educational hub. He is the first non-rabbi to run this institution, and he is the first HUC president to be a guest on Unorthodox, more importantly, I think. So welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. What should we be calling you? Andrew. Andrew? Andy? Not Andy. Mr. President. (laughs) I used to be called Andy when I was in high school, but... When did you decide to say, stop calling me Andy? It's actually a very distinctive moment. So I've been for about 10 years. Uh, I went by Andy. Uh, High school, a little into college, and people in the reform movement know me as Andy, because that's when I was song leading at Kutz Camp, the leadership camp. And I had served for a year with the Joint Distribution uh, Committee's uh, Jewish Service Corps. I came back from a camp that I had done in Bulgaria, and these kids did these wonderful... Uh, montages of, of thank you, these these pictures, these colored drawings. They were little kids, and they all said on them, thank you, Andrew, thank you, Andrew. And, and something about looking at that, reclaiming my name, I had gone to Andy as a protest against my childhood as I was becoming an adult. It was just a, one of those moments where you change a name and it signifies a whole lot more than just I will what people say, call you. Based on the way you're dressed, you are not an Andy. <laughs> this is not an Andy suit. This is a doctor, rabbi, president, you know, His Royal Highness Andrew. I, I, I dressed for you. Well, we're very grateful. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about you, but I also want to sort of say how you ended up stepping into this role, which sure. is a story that a lot of our listeners were, were very, very upset by. Um, the tragic death of Rabbi Aaron Penkin, who was your predecessor. Can you sort of tell us a little bit about him and the role he played in, in shaping HUC and then sort of how you came to the mantle? Sure. I mean, the, the loss was a loss not only for the institution, but for the Jewish world. Uh, Aaron brought a great deal of forward thinking, of uh, professional professionalism, of management, of a vision for what HUC could be that was really moving it into the 21st century decisively. Aaron and I had a, um, a prior connection. He was the crafty advisor and had hired me as a song leader some 30, 35 At years K- ago. Kutz Camp? Kutz Camp, where we, yeah. And uh, other than that, I mean, that was the limit of our connection. 
but you just had a sense in his presence and his personality. I don't know if you ever met him. Just so much joy, so much love for Judaism, the Jewish people, and the world, really understanding our mission as Jews was to turn what we did into a benefit for elevating the world. Uh, and so his, his loss on May 15th of 2018 was just devastating, again, for the institution and for the, uh, the world. So um, I, I was an academic my life. I have a PhD from the University of Chicago in political science. I do political theory. had a career in academia at Washington University. I was serving at the time. No one is perfect. That's okay. What? You don't have to feel embarrassed about it. About what? We forgive you. Career in academia. It's fine. We all we all try. He's a recovered is academic. Is he here for the whole podcast? Yes, he's here. Okay? Honestly, Just for the whole day, out. actually, for me. <laughs> and I had been recruited by the St. Louis community to serve as the CEO of the Jewish Federation. I'd been very active in both reform movement and uh, reform synagogues, reform congregations. Served on the board in Chicago of KM Isaiah Israel, a historic congregation, South Side of Chicago. Served in um, Jewish community in St. Louis, was serving as the CEO of the Jewish Federation, still having a, a tenured appointment in WashU, and I got a, an email from the search firm that said, would I be interested? And I said, well, I'd be interested, but you and the committee won't be interested. I'm not a rabbi. I'd be happy to talk to you about other people. So it never occurred to me. I thought they just didn't do their due diligence. It took them a little while to convince me that the committee and the institution were really interested in pursuing someone with my background. And it really required the committee and the institution to recognize that they weren't just a rabbinical seminary, that that is still the most important program that we have, the most the, the central to our identity, but just over half of the students enrolled are rabbis. And understanding that what they're doing and they have done goes far beyond the rabbinate, but really training Jewish leaders of all kind to transform Jewish communities, Jewish people in the world, and really having a vision of what it means to be a modern institution graduate in professional school. That's the vision, and that was something that Aaron was moving towards and that I'm picking up his movement mid-stride. So what does your job look like day to day? <laughs> it's I mostly know. on a seat in Delta Airlines. Yeah, right? so where do you yeah. where do you fly between? Where are the Sort of tell us a little bit for someone who doesn't know anything about HUC. Absolutely. HUC is a multi-program and schooled graduate and professional institution. We have five main schools. And the rabbinical school is one you know about, the cantorial program, Debbie Friedman School of Sacred Music, our educational school. We have a Zellico School of Jewish Nonprofit Management that does work in conjunction with the University of Southern California. Uh, we have a graduate school that does PhD and master's degrees in Jewish studies. Uh, and we also run an Israeli rabbinical program. We are the Jewish Studies Department of the University of Southern California. That's a named school called the Lockheim School not including those students, so the hundreds of students that take our classes there, we have 330 matriculated students in our graduate and professional programs. Just over half of them are in the rabbinical school. We have four campuses, one in LA, one in Cincinnati where Hebrew Union College started, one in New York on the campus of NYU, and one in Jerusalem right on King David Street between the King David Hotel and the David Citadel Hotel. It's a magnificent campus designed by Moshe Safdi and um, really extraordinary. So I think for most of our listeners, imagining Jewish communal leadership, Jewish community organizations, I think a lot of our listeners would be pretty confused or, or hard-pressed to imagine what these organizations are doing today. I think for a lot of us, you know, it's clear, you know, our moms might have belonged to Hadassah. We right. might have grown up in a JCC. But today it seems like there are a lot 
lot of organizations out there, but not a real clarity of what these organizations are doing to meet the rapidly changing demographics and needs of the Jewish community. So what do we need to have better Jewish organizations moving forward? It's fantastic. Thank you for the question. Uh, So to begin with, I think what you said is the most important thing, recognizing that the challenges we face in the 21st century, not the challenges we faced in the 20th century. The way I describe those challenges of the 20th century where they were urgent and existential. Think about just going through a chronology of the century, immigration and emigration in the first part, the Holocaust, the formation of the state of Israel in the second part, and the reemergence of Soviet Jewry and the need to rescue refugees, et cetera, in the last part. All of those were urgent and existential. They threatened our existence. And if we didn't act, we had devastating consequences. And certainly the, the worst and most tragic of that is the Shoah. In the 21st century, really after, well, just the beginning of the 21st century, our challenges shifted dramatically for a number of reasons. They, they shifted to what I call slow existential threats. They're still existential, right? We're still threatened as a people, but they're slow. They're not as urgent. We could avoid them tomorrow. We could avoid them for a year or two. They're still going to be there. They are around three core ideas. One about strengthening Jewish education, the other about strengthening Jewish engagement, and the third about strengthening Jewish identity. Education, engagement, and identity, the knowing, the doing, and the being of Jewish, right? How do we feel about ourselves, what we're doing to actively be involved, and what we know, the knowledge base of Jewish life. The question is, how do you address them? One of the things we lost when we left the shtetl, 19th century, right, and went to the 20th, 21st, is a sense of strong community. But I think about strong community in a term that that I take from the American experience of of the public sphere. And if you think about the public sphere, you think about the, your picture of the New England town. Think about Norman Rockwell. I mean, you're really sort of old school description of this. You have the social service clinic, you have the school, you have the church in the, in, in the center. All of these, it's a series of institutions that each works in part with the other to create a canvas on which the town's values and the individual could express the, the values of the community. That idea of the American public sphere or the American small town uh, was pushed against, reformed for very good reason to introduce minority voices into it excluded women. So I'm not idealizing what it was substantively, but idealizing the idea of it. This idea of a network of institutions that form a canvas upon which we live our lives and our values are expressed. To your question, the institutions of the Jewish community form the Jewish public sphere in any one of our towns. It's hard to see that in New York. I'll just tell you that because a third of the of the town is Jewish, so you don't you don't notice it. But it's not just the synagogue, which remains the centerpiece of this. It's the Jewish Community Center. It's the Jewish Federation. It's the Jewish newspaper. I mean, I come from a town of St. Louis, has 90,000 individuals associated with the Jewish community, 60,000 Jewish, 30,000 non-Jewish intermarried in. Those institutions form the glue, form the network, form the canvas upon which people live their lives. And if we don't move them to strong institutions with strong lay leaders, with strong professionals that know not only the Jewish content, but also how to manage, how to lead, how to inspire, we're not going to address those core, those three attributes that describe the the challenges of the 21st century, Jewish education, Jewish engagement, and Jewish identity, the knowing, the doing, and the being of Jewish. If I were in a crabby mood, I would say that a, shall we say, large swath of American Jewish communities do not, in fact, have a Jewish newspaper. Synagogue membership numbers, as we see year after year, are in a continuous freefall. Federations remain this thing that I think a lot of our listeners are aware of, 
but none would probably be able to define specifically what it is they do to the community. And the JCC is where their your Gentile friends go to play squash. Hmm. Uh, and you sometimes swim and maybe send your I kids never to swim, just for the record. That <laughs> squash? We're, we're, squash sometimes. Everyone, we're happy to hear. <laughs> are these institutions themselves, which yeah. make a world of sense for the early 20th century setting, do they make sense now in yeah. an age where so many people live online, where so many people live outside of traditional communal centers? Or is it time to rethink think the very structure. The institutions that you named, I'll just pick three of them, the newspaper, the synagogue, and federations are legacy institutions. They're institutions whose structure came from addressing past needs and have to flex in order to meet current needs. Unfortunately, those institutions that don't recognize the changes in the, in the works are declining, and federations are a great example of that. Federations that persist in thinking they are fundraising organizations are declining because they don't understand, I think, their mission, what it always had been, and that is to be community development organizations. And those that have moved in that direction that really see themselves as actively involved in supporting and growing the community, and by the way, money will come if they have clarity of their mission, they're seeing growth and they're seeing expansion. That's what we did in St. Louis, and we had 10% growth, certainly in our fundraising. People give money to things they care about, right? They don't give money just to give money. Think about Coca-Cola as a great example of a legacy institution that had to change. Right. Was its mission putting great cola in distinctive bottles, or was it delivering really refreshing beverages in a, an effective way? They understood that it was the latter, and so over the last 20 or 30 years, they could respond to a changing market that is declining in its interest in sweet, sugary sodas and are now dominating the bottle beverage industry. And they haven't compromised their brand. Coke is still the most powerful brand, one of them in the world, but they've done it in a way that they've responded to the need. So what then is the way that our legacy institutions have to shift and reframe the message and the meaning. I said about federations, if they don't understand that their mission is not raising money, but actually being a partner in developing community, they will go out of business. And that's the the kind you're saying. Think about synagogues. I disagree with the idea that synagogues are declining. Yes, current institutions, the way that they are formed are declining. But I think there are two things which which you have to look at demographically. Millennials who would have formed the natural. We don't like them. (laughs) No, we don't. Nobody does. I do. I'm, I'm, I think Stephanie does. I'm an, I'm I'm an early sure millennial. Stephanie is. A, I identify as an early millennial, but I'm not. She's I'm early, a, does that mean you're old now or does that mean you're young now? Old, like the early, the, the first, early form, not like the, not like wave, the TikTokers. Yeah. Right. She's converting out of millennialism. Yeah. So you, yes, I don't me. know, I don't, I I don't know my body. I don't belong to a synagogue. You. I stream services. But let me just ask you a personal question. Do you have a family? Uh, I have a cat. I have a husband and a cat. Okay, do you have kids yet? No. So okay. that's when it... That's when it does. And if you look at millennials, there is a five to 15 year gap between when they're having kids and when baby boomers, not yeah. Gen X, but baby boomers did. And when do people join and invest in synagogue When life? you need your kids when they have to... Kids. Yeah. So I would predict, the, the initial evidence is not clear about this because they're beginning, as millennials move into their 40s, you're going to see the decline in synagogue life at least slow if not flatten or increase, because people want spiritual connection with community, they want education for their kids, and the synagogue, compared to nothing else, provides that. Now, the 15 years that we've lost between the time that people used to start when they're 25 and now they're starting at 40, other institutions have stepped in. You know, you have uh, non-affiliated institutions that are forming new forms of community vibrancy. And when I think about Hebrew Union College and the work that we're doing, we are looking at how do we train our students for innovation? How are we 
uh, training them for non-traditional organizational leadership, creating Jewish public spheres to meet those slow existential threats of the 21st century to appeal to exactly, Stephanie, to you and to your future progeny. Oh, wow. Don't tell Cat Stevens. Just he's going to be you. very, very upset. Um, yeah, he's, so, he's, wait, what? He's, he's a reconstructionist. My cat, yeah, no. Oh, your cat is Cat Stevens. Yes. Like, I just listened to some Cat Stevens. Um, he's a Boba Ver Hasid. He, so, he is now, is that what I lost track? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Kept ping ponging. He's, no, he's, he's a he's on zealot. his journey. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting to hear what you're saying because it is echoing a lot of these conversations. So we have been traveling the the country for the past, I would say, six months. We have a book out. We do live shows, and we've been to St. Louis and Cincinnati recently. We've been to all these different cities, and there definitely is a difference in what Jewish life looks like in different cities. And you know, we had an amazing show in Cincinnati. We haven't aired it yet, and one of the guests had grown up in L.A. and moved to Cincinnati, and he basically said. You know, when I lived in L.A., you just were Jewish because you drove down the street and there were Correct. six synagogues on either side. And so you actually didn't have to do much. And then he said, you know, when I moved, I hate to spoil this whole interview. It was great, a great one that you'll, I think people will still get a lot out of. But when I moved to Cincinnati, I had to seek out my Jewish community. And he's like, and now I'm on the board of my synagogue and I'm highly active. And he's like, I would never have done that in L.A. Absolutely. And I, I do feel like, you know, we do, we do events all over the country. We did an event at the JCC in Manhattan once, and Michelle Obama was at the Stryker Center at Temple Emanuel yeah. the same night. Yeah. And it's like, with the saturation of so of the market, I wonder if, is there something we can learn from the Cincinnati's, from the St. Louis's? Yeah, so Cincinnati and St. Louis are perfect examples of what I call um, mid-sized Jewish communities. They have fewer than 100,000 Jews, more than 20,000, which means they are sm- large enough to actually do something significant and small enough to feel cohesion and a sense of community. Those are the places where building the Jewish public sphere is most important because you've got to get people engaged and people want to be engaged for their identity. The other feature of these communities is that they are fewer than 3% of the population. And that matters a lot because your Jewish identity becomes salient when you can't take it for granted. Yeah, you can't just eat a bagel on Barney Greengrass. And the other thing, and the Sturgeon King, which is like, just to to smell it. I mean, it's just wonderful. (laughs) I go back to my childhood in Ventnor, New Jersey. Okay, getting back to Cincinnati and St. Louis. So the other piece of this is that there are fewer than 3% of the population in their surrounding communities, which means two things. Number one, you can't take being Jewish for granted. And when you go to your professional world, you are interacting with people that have never met a Jew. Often they're meeting you for the first time. They don't know from Jewish. They might come with ignorance. They might come with stereotype based on ignorance. Uh, but that that puts you in a in a place where your education, engagement, and identity are, are really important to strengthen. So yeah, there are different kinds of communities. And I think that being sensitive and preparing leaders, which is what HUC does for the Jewish public sphere in all kinds of communities is critically important. So the thing I've also noticed is when we go to these places, we go to these events, we meet the amazing people who are doing the work of running the Correct. JCC's programming. How do we support those people after they're out of HUC? I mean, how do we, these people who are shouldering the burdens of these big institutions and not necessarily getting the support they need? I mean, how do we support them as they do this really sometimes thankless job of of making sure your JCC book festival has everyone you need and stuff like that. Well, I think raising the awareness of the importance of it to Jewish identity, engagement, education uh, is a first step. The second piece is to understand, I mean, look at what you're doing with Unorthodox, truly. You know, you mentioned, uh, Liel, the, the idea of the newspaper declining. This is taking its place. You know, it's in terrifying. A very, well, yeah, I wasn't going to say <laughs> that, but you're lowering standards every day. Uh-huh. Uh, but, <laughs> but in truth, you are filling that gap of people wanting to feel, what did the newspaper do? Sure, it shared news. We 
have so many news outlets, it does that less well. It binds people. It creates a shared story. There was this great, uh, I'll get back to the question of it, but let me just tell you that there was a great uh, book called Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson, published in 1983, asking why is it, how did nationalism start? How is it possible? It required a shared story so that people in northern Germany, for example, which one of the cases uses, could feel bound to people in southern Germany that they never felt before. You were providing the connective tissue that the Jewish public sphere does, but unorthodoxes and podcasts like this do to people that are never going to meet. So how can you support it? Back to your question. Get involved, whether it's with a podcast or with your local federation or with your local congregation. And when you're not involved, understand we don't have what American communities have, and that is the power of the purse and the sword. We need people to step up with their involvement, not only of their time, but also of their resources. Give to your federation. Give to your synagogue. How are you all funded? We're part of Tablet Magazine. Yeah, Tablet. Is, so yeah. How, but how a tab, But that I get a solicitation from Tablet. Yeah, Tablet yeah. is Jewish nonprofit. Viewers like yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, viewers like me. Yeah. So I probably have not given to Tablet, and I should out myself and start giving. So, And you should give to HUC. You should give to JTS. You should give to the institutions that are creating the leaders and strengthening the Jewish public sphere, because without it, we cannot survive. I want to talk the reform movement for for a second. So you guys started off the uh, late 19th, early 20th century with a very particular theological bent that was deeply radical. In a way, I don't know how many people listening realize how radical it was. A complete rejection of the idea of, you know, the sort of return to Zion, a complete rejection of Zionism itself. Like, uh, a, um, well, yeah, go ahead. A, a deep kind of distinction of, of a truly new American. I mean, from its German origins, like a, a truly new American way of looking at the Jewish faith. And the 20th century has, has sort of changed and, and, and mitigated much of that. I wonder where you see reform Judaism today, because I think to some people, especially some who are on the more conservadox and or orthodox side of things, uh, it still appears to be some kind of stopgap solution to just like, well, we'll get you here. We'll do a lot of English because we understand you don't want to learn the Hebrew. We'll talk a lot about values like tikkun olam because we understand it's kind of meant to be a social movement. Now, part of me thinks that this criticism is deeply unfair. But part of me really wonders what it means to to run something like Reform Judaism, which has always been about wrestling with modernity. So just to put a little more context and color on your comments, and to tell you that I actually agree with the premise, so I'll get to that in a second, but the context is that the reform that you're talking about is a specific kind of reform that, that was a reform for America and is the reform we inherited, but reform actually begins at the beginning of the 19th or even the 18th century with in, in Germany, mm-hmm. and it's imported by Isaac Mayer Wise, the first president of HUC, who really makes it an American Judaism with the institution. So what's the premise that I agree with? I agree that the popular perception of reform is a sort of what we don't do. If you ask people, what is it? So you're reformed Jew. What does that mean? Well, I don't keep kosher. I don't uh, observe the Sabbath. And uh, I think that we have lost and we are confronting in the reform movement a crisis of authenticity, a sense of who we are, what's distinctive about reform Judaism that is so distinctive from the others. And I think that that demands that we go back to a core foundation and core ideology to reclaim what it means to be reform. The, the examples that you gave of tikkun olam, for example, and I would add another one, radical inclusion, or what my colleague Rabbi Rick Jacobs, who's the president of the Union of Reform Judaism, calls audacious hospitality. Both of those are really important practices, practices of tikkun olam to repair the world and a practice of welcoming everyone in. I support them 100%. But they're practices 
that aren't themselves ideological foundations. You can't figure out, well, why should I be inclusive? Why should I pursue tukun alum? Unless you understand the ideology, and that's what I'm talking about. And I can get to the ideology in a second, but you did say something provocative as if Reform Judaism was the only kind of Judaism that rejected Zionism. I want you to understand that we were in lockstep with the Orthodox at the time, who also rejected Zionism right. for very different reasons. When Herzl wanted to place the first Zionist Congress in Munich, the rabbis there, primarily the Orthodox rabbi, rejected it because they wanted nothing to do with this nationalist, and so they forced them to go to Basel, Switzerland. So the heritage of rejecting Zionism, a nationalist project, was both the Reform and the Orthodox side. It was opposed by Zionism, and it was opposed by secularists that were particularly supporting Zionism. So what then is the theology? What is distinctive? Is that what you're asking? Yes. How, how do you train Reform rabbis moving into the future to kind of hold all of these complexities? And identify what it is that they do what we do, do. So not let me get that they to don't do. do. I love that idea. Yeah. So here's the thing. So ideology and philosophy mean you're getting to core principles. So let's understand what we're about to go into, core principles, okay? You, you Let's distinguish uh, Reform from what I would call rabbinic or synatic Judaism, and let's call Reform what I call enlightened Reform Judaism. So it's Reform but it expands. You'll see it doesn't go to the dominations. What distinguishes reform or what we would conventionally call orthodox? First is how do we understand the universe? How do we understand the world? For the traditionalist, for the orthodox, for the rabbinical Jew, there are two key ideas. Number one is Sinai, and number two is rabbinical authority. That is, we understand the world through revelation in which Sinai was a real event, Moses a real character, and God, in fact, gave Torah to Moses at Sinai. Reform is post-enlightenment and says we cannot perceive, we believe that the thing that makes us distinctly divine or in the image of God uh, is our rational capabilities, and we are not willing to subsume them to an idea that is contrary to reason. There's no evidence that Sinai happened. There's no evidence that Moses existed. There's no evidence that that event happened. So we have to treat it as mythology, and we have to understand reason as being that which uh, navigates our, uh, ourselves through the world, and we understand God's presence in the world through what reason can show. Number two, rabbinical authority. So for rabbinic Judaism, ultimately it's the rabbis that have the legal authority to bind us to that law. And in reform, it is the moral autonomy of the individual that is primary. That is, we accept our moral responsibility to discern uh, what is right and wrong through using rabbis and other uh, teachers as teachers, as guides, as pastors, but we accept that responsibility ourselves. So that's number two. And number three, what is the value of Judaism itself? Is it intrinsically valuable for our own sake, or is it instrumentally valuable, important Torah, Avodah, Yisrael, for the sake of improving the world. And uh, in orthodoxy or rabbinic or synatic Judaism, Judaism itself is the thing for its own purpose. For reformed Jews, or what I would call enlightened uh, Judaism, uh, we engage in Torah and the study of our texts, we engage in our practices, and we engage in the particularity of our community of Israel, as well as connected to our, to our history in Israel, as instrumentally important to pursue those universal values of goodness, of holiness, of rightness, and justice. And that's what motivates us, and that's what differentiates us distinctively from rabbinic or synatic Judaism. And look, the, along with secular Judaism, those in my mind are the three legitimate forms of Judaism today. Secular, what I would call Enlightenment Judaism that includes reform, some 
construction, some conservative, and Sinaitic or Rabbinic Judaism, which includes all flavors of Orthodoxy. I got to tell you, man, this is this is a rock and roll answer, and you should definitely be a president. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate. That. But 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 I have I have then I'll a show follow that with up. a search committee. Yeah, uh, you should. I hope the job's for life. By the way, yeah, I hope it's for as long as it's like oh, the Supreme please. Court. You know, the Pope resigned for a reason. But but, but now uh, I have a follow up question. God willing, the way you very eloquently and and very convincingly just described a fundamental gulf, not just in practices, but really in an entire way of seeing the world. Given that description, do you really believe that the goal of, well, Jewish peoplehood, Jewish unity is possible? Can you really have a meaningful relationship with people like myself, for example, who see the world very differently. Yeah. Um, so first of all, if we always engaged in philosophical first principles, I think the answer would be no. Fortunately, we don't. <laughs> and for, fortunately, we can look at shared practices. Right. I'm pretty sure, oh gosh, is it April 8th? What is the first night of, of Passover? April 8th. April 8th, right. Okay. Um, so I'm pretty sure that this year, April 8th, you and I are going to be doing the same thing using the same book, or maybe not. And I say maybe not because maybe you're using some sort of weird fango, because I've listened to some of the stuff that you do in some of your... But we will have the tablet yeah, Haggadah. Yeah, exactly. I've got it a month yeah. before. That's awesome. So some version of that. So the practices that we engage in, and look, bottom line is forget about theology. Judaism is a religion of practice. It always has been. And so the shared practices are what matter. And the uh, that instrumentality that for me as a Reformed Judaism guides why I am in community requires community. It isn't that, oh, I'm a particularistically Jewish because... You know, what? why? I wish that I couldn't be. Well, I'm particularistically Jewish because I don't believe that you can get to universalism unless you go through a particular community. That means that we are finding the common ground between us. That means we can agree to disagree on things and be pluralists in our community institutions without giving up the specificity that distinguishes us. George Washington wrote a great letter to the community in Newport, the Reformed community in Newport, uh, welcoming them to America and saying, you know, you are fellow citizens in this sort of way and the, the children of Abraham, all this sort of 18th century language. And if you ask the question, what was he doing? He was showing that America was a pluralistic nation and there was something fundamentally that made us Americans. He wasn't saying that he believed in Judaism. He was a deist, maybe he was a Christian, but he certainly wasn't Jewish. And he wasn't expecting the Jews to accept Protestantism or Protestants to accept Catholicism or Catholics to accept Jews. But he was recognizing that in America, what bound us as Americans was the ideal of freedom of individuals, etc., we as rabbinic Jews, as reformed Jews, as secular Jews can find that which binds us in a pluralistic framework. That's why it's so important that our communal institutions, our federations, our JCCs, or the state of Israel be committed to a common platform, even though there are distinctions. Yes, a Protestant is not like a Catholic, but they're both Americans. A reform is not like an Orthodox Jew, but they're both Jews. And unless we get that straight, we are going to be in civil war with each other and have the kind of divisions that are nothing but destructive. Let's agree to disagree. You believe revelation happened. You believe God gave uh, Torah to Moses, despite there not being any scientific evidence to support that claim. I don't because there's not scientific evidence to support the claim. Okay, now what? Well, now we still study Torah every week. We still need to eat. We still need to eat. You know, we still are engaged in the same set of practices. Let's figure out the meaning that we draw from them, even while we're recognizing the fundamentally different ideological basis. And I just want to say again, 
your fundamental premise about what the Reformed Judaism today, that people are defining it by negatives, they're defining it by without a lack of understanding. I think that's a problem. I think more people ought to understand our commitment to reason, which is why, by the way, it is a religious imperative for me to fight global warming. What is that about, the politics of that? It's about a rejection of rationality and science. That, to me, is elevated to a religious principle because of the rationality behind it, in addition to the destruction of the world that it's bringing about. This is fascinating. Andrew Rayfield, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Of course. Our listeners can learn more about HUC, Hebrew Union College, at huc.edu. And I will tell you, we have a huge opportunity. Over the last 50 years, the pools of students that come to us are changing dramatically, and we are eager to find students who may be considering lives of service in law, in health, in academia, who want to serve their people and really move the world towards justice through a career, whether it's a rabbi, a cantor, an educator, a nonprofit manager, a graduate student, come and talk to us. We would love to find that path in for you. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? 
to the mailbox. Josh, I really need some uh, kinky, curly-haired music, a music bed of Art Garfunkel-esque proportions underneath this week's mailbox. You'll see what I mean in a minute. First off, I want to say that we got a lot of terrific mail uh, about my interview last week with anti-Zionist Carolyn Karcher, and we are holding some of that mail for next week because it just keeps pouring in. So this week, let us attend to a prior issue in the podcast, which was the question of how to represent your Jewishness. So we got mail about that. Hi, Unorthodox. Shana here from Anchorage, Alaska. As a Jew married to a non-Jew, I resonated with the let the Jew fro fly in your recent episode. My husband has told me for years to stop straightening my hair. And maybe in my early 20s, I would have disregarded his opinion, thinking that my naturally wavy, i.e. frizzy, hair was much less superior than my fake straight hair. However, I did listen to him and realized he was right. Why am I not flaunting my fabulous frizz? So in the past few years, I've tried for the natural look. I'm not perfect. And yes, sometimes I still break out the straightener. But all in all, I feel confident with my air-dry look. Thanks for the podcast and the fro boost. Shayna Seidner. Well, Shayna, great to hear from you. We didn't mean to guilt anyone who ever straightened their hair. People should do what makes them feel happy. I was just offering an, an alternative suggestion and one that doesn't require a trip to the jewelry store or the tattoo artist. We got this letter as well. Dear Unorthodox, just had to respond when I heard Mark say that a way to look outwardly Jewish is to let your hair out and wear it au naturel. I couldn't agree more. It reminds me of when I went for a job interview, and because I'm Shomer Shabbat, I had previously told my employer-to-be that I couldn't work Friday evening or Saturday. I walked into his office, and he gave me one look and said, By any chance are you Jewish? He said it was undoubtedly my curls. And then, once I was given the job, he kept complimenting me on my hair and how great and Jewish it looked. I couldn't tell if it was a compliment, a stereotype, or if he was just hitting on me. Anyway, make of it what you will. I love my Semitic hair and wouldn't dye it, straighten it, or cut it for anything. Your British Jew, Betsy Dweck. Well, Betsy, uh, we hope that you are surviving this era of Megxit well, and we're proud to have you as one of our many British Jews in the J. Crew. And now this letter from another fabulous woman in the J. Crew. Hello, all. I've recently started wearing my kippah basically full time now as I transition into only eating at kosher certified restaurants. I hear you on the gendered issue. I live in Washington Heights, and I've had men pull their children away from me on the sidewalk. Many people won't return my good Shabbos or Shabbat Shalom. As a result, I'm much more afraid of being hurt by a Jewish man than a non-Jew on the street. People feel like they have a right to come talk to me when I'm in public spaces, approaching me at the grocery store, at bagel stores, etc. Like I'm a famous person, aka my kippah means I don't have a regular person's anonymity. I don't wear the kippah for political reasons. I wear it because it is a specific, recognizable Jewish symbol. I would love, love, love to have more women wearing kippot in public so that I am less alone. So if you're thinking about wearing one out of solidarity, please do. Many thanks, Rebecca Galen. And Rebecca is a longtime listener and fan of the show who has been to our live shows as well. And so exciting to get mail from Rebecca Galen. Thanks to all of you in the J Crew for your thoughtful comments on this matter. Write to us on this or any topic at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Our Gentile of the Week is Ed Gaskin. We were connected to him by friend of the podcast, Barry Weiss, and she said, you have to speak to this guy. So, Ed, hello. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
So you're a devout Christian. You've taught seminary students. You've written about the church and all manners of modern life. And then you recently started attending Shabbat services. (laughs) How did that come about? So what happened was, is that after the Tree of Life shooting, I felt that was so horrific that I had, I felt like I needed to do something to identify with the Jewish community. And um, I went to the service and uh, I had never actually had only been to um, an actual Shabbat service once in my life. And so I sort of, you know, I went by myself and I didn't know anybody there. And I was sort of almost like uh, somewhat nervous. And so I just sat in the, um, the very back row uh, by myself because <laughs> I had heard in some temples that some of the members owned seats, whatever, and I didn't want to sit in anybody's seat. And so I just sort of wanted to sit there quietly and be in solidarity with the community. And I contrast that to when I went to the uh, Charlottesville March. I was like one of 40,000 people. And I said, well, you know, I don't do a lot of marches, but it was a nice day and I didn't have anything on my schedule. So off I went. Um, This was the Charlottesville counter march, right? Yep. That was the anti, that was the counter march to what happened in Charlottesville when that same group came to Boston. Oh, okay. Okay. So anyway, so there I was, I went to the Shabbat service and I sat there and at the end of it, it dawned on me. I said, geez, I don't remember saying anything or praying anything or hearing anything sung or preached that I, as a Christian, don't agree to. And so I was like, the light bulb went off. I said, hmm, that's interesting. And then um, I said, but, you know, having gone to church all my life, I said, you can't judge something from just one service. So I came back the next week and I just did that for the next 52 weeks. Uh, I think it was my first year. I made it to 50 to 52 Shabbat services. I still go every Friday. I went to all the high holy days and Passover and everything else. Which you realize is is more than, say, 93% of American Jews. Well, I hear that all the time, but I love the experience. So there I am. In fact, I've been an evangelist. I've been trying to get my Jewish friends to go, and they, they don't want to be part of it. They're like... Uh, no, once our kids got bar mitzvahed, we stopped going. Or my one friend said, Ed, going to Shabbat is a lot of work for a free glass of wine. <laughs> so b- before we get down to the substance, I really want to talk about the style. So as a church-going man, you're sitting there and you're starting to, to get the vibe of what a Shabbat service is like. How is it like church and how is it completely different? Well, church obviously is very, that's a very broad, right? So you could have like a a very liturgical church, let's say like a a Catholic, Episcopalian, whatever, or you might have something like a Quaker church. So it's more like churches uh, that follow a liturgy. For me, besides having gone to seminary, I also studied world religions. And so it was easy for me to understand the liturgy, what was being accomplished. So you understand that, you know, the beginning of the service, the middle of the service, the end of the service. And so in all those ways, it's almost parallel. You know, it's like you have an opening, you have an ending, and you sort of understand the stuff and the, the sequence of stuff that's in between. This is all at Congregation Beth Elohim in Boston, is that correct? That is correct. And so when do people start realizing, like, you're really there for this, this guy who sits in the back row keeps coming back? Like, do they introduce themselves? How do you start interacting with the other fellow uh, synagogue goers? That happened almost immediately because, you know, people kept inviting, you know, like, I remember one, probably my second or third time there, I was sitting there in the, in the back on my little bench, and uh, somebody had come up to me. I could see them coming out of the corner of my eyes, and I was really worried because I had gotten to service early, and I was on my smartphone, 
And I said, oh my God, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm like working on the Sabbath and it's in the temple on top of it. I'm probably going to get like reprimanded or something. And uh, this woman just came over to invite me to sit with her and her family. But that was so consistent. And then the, the rabbi, you know, he'd always say to me, you know, after service, oh, we have to get together. We have to talk. And I didn't really take him seriously because I figured, you know, he's got 1,300 families in the congregation to worry about, not some strange person that's not a member, until I got an email from him that invited me to lunch. And so we went. So I just found that the community was very welcoming. And people always asked me if I was a member. And they didn't ask it like in an offensive way. They almost asked it in more like an apologetic, embarrassed way. Like, are you a member? Because, you know, this place is so large, I wouldn't know if you were or you weren't. And I always took that in a very positive way that if they asked me if I was a member, it means I could have been a member if I wanted to be. So I, I just really love the, uh, the encouragement and the fellowship from the, my fellow congregants. So I imagine your weekends always sort of include a, a synagogue service and a church service. Break down, what does your weekend look like? As you know, like in a lot of Christians, some people might go to this Easter and Christmas or something. And some people, some percentage of people go, you know, once a week on Sunday. And then there's some people who go maybe like twice a week, right? They might go to a Wednesday Bible study. They might go to a Friday or a midweek prayer meeting and Sunday. And so in my case... You know, I I typically go to church on on Sunday, and so for me, uh, going to the Shabbat service on Friday is sort of like my my equivalent to going to prayer meeting or Bible study. So I get to go twice a week. I go to Shabbat on Friday. I go to church on Sunday. I feel like I've got the best of the both worlds because I got my Hebrew Old Testament rabbinical teaching on on Friday and my New Testament Christian teaching on Sunday. And Saturday is like college football. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like I have it like very is very compatible to me. So I tried to argue that I wanted to be both Christian and in Jewish, and um, I said it's just like people have two passports. They have a U.S. passport, they have another passport, they have dual citizenships. I said I don't understand why I can't be both and as opposed to either or. So do you find that that this year of a visit changed, informed, deepened uh, your your own faith? Absolutely, absolutely. Because um, again, I think. I can see beyond the specific rituals and understand some of like the meanings behind them. So I would say, first of all, most Protestant ministers, preachers aren't that good in Hebrew. So I get to get like my little Hebrew teaching or my the Torah study where the rabbis, I, I assume most of them all know Hebrew. So I get a little Hebrew teaching there that I probably wouldn't get. And then I remember going the week of Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur, all those days and all those services, I can't even pronounce them all, but like I had the one where you throw the stuff in the river and it washes away. The Tashlich. You know, like all those are very meaningful if you understand what's the thought behind it. So for me, it's like trying to understand the thought behind that religious expression in the same way, like if I went, I'm not Catholic, but if I went to a Catholic church and I understood about praying the stations of the cross, you know, like what was the thought behind it? What's the intent? And using that as an opportunity to pray and worship God. You seem to be so open to sort of all sorts of informed religious ritual. And I'm wondering, are there things you hear in one, like, are there ways in which these two practices are just fundamentally incompatible to you? I won't name names, but I did have somebody who asked me the question. They said, well, you can't be both Christian and Jewish. No, there's too many exclusive claims in Christianity about Jesus being the only way and whatever. And so I said, well... I said, you know, as a Christian, I have to believe that we have, that God is sovereign and we believe in free will. 
I have to believe that Jesus is, God is in three persons, but he's one person, that he's both human and divine, that this virgin gave birth to a, to a person who's both son of man and son of God. I said, so I, I live with paradoxes and contradictions all the time as part of the faith. So it's not an issue for me to believe that Jesus is the only way and Jesus is not the only way. This is like a sort of like a trinity, like a duality in which yes. it's both the way and not, not the only way. It's not my job to figure these things out. Huh. So I don't. I, I always say, I don't think that God is going to let somebody into heaven that shouldn't be there, nor will he exclude somebody that should be there. So I think that's a higher pay grade. Somebody else will figure those things out. I'm just trying to focus on myself in terms of, I figure the more times I can be in the house of faith or the house of worship and praying and worshiping, probably that's good for me because that means I'm not someplace else that I probably shouldn't be. Hallelujah. Now, would you recommend this as a, as a sort of as a wide practice for both you know Christians, Muslims, and Jews to just make a habit of regularly attending each other's services? I would, but let me explain why. So for instance, I think it's brought me a much better understanding of anti-Semitism. And so when I'm talking to the rabbi or other congregants, and I'm thinking, what would I do if somebody came through these doors right now and started shooting, or just talking to the rabbi about, you know, that we have to have a guard, do we have a guard with a gun or whatever? I've never been in any other houses of worship where that was such a reality. And that now I think sort of almost experientially or existentially, like for instance, I was at a service one time and the fire alarm went off and I said, oh, is it going off because there's a shooter in the building? So now I have like just a smidgen of understanding of just that terror or fear of saying, geez, if I go to worship, uh, maybe I'm in the process of being a martyr because I've made this stand. And so it's sort of like being in somebody else's shoes. It helps a deeper understanding. I also think that when I heard some of the comments or lectures, whatever, let's say from the ADL, it's different having been at the temple because the context is different. And what I mean by that is I had kind of thought that the people who were anti-Semitic were more of your Confederate flag, shotgun, pickup, truck driving kind of people, not your Harvard graduate owning two or three homes and, you know, country club members. And so I was like, why is there's there's anti-Semitism out in the suburbs? Like, that doesn't even make any sense to me. Like, what do they have to be upset about? But I'm just saying part of that experience is you start understanding things in a, in a way that's much different than you would if you just heard a lecture someplace. Well, it's really interesting because you taught a seminary class for a really long time. It was called Christianity and the Problem of Racism, right? So this is something you've actually been thinking about for quite some time, the idea of prejudice and hate and how it functions within uh, religious communities and around religious communities. So that is true. But I, I think for myself, what I had to realize is I had a very shallow understanding of anti-Semitism. If I was going to teach the class again today, I would probably teach that section very different. I remember, for instance, historically, I thought of anti-Semitism as just, it's discrimination and there's all different kinds of ways and shapes and forms of discrimination. And in its most extreme form, it ends in genocide, as in something like the Holocaust. I don't think I had understood or appreciate maybe the depth and breadth of it. And now I feel, like I said, if I was doing that again, I would do it much differently. And part of my motivation, I don't know if I had said that, was I had felt when the Tree of Life happened that I remembered when the St. Louis and not letting the, the passengers disembark. And I felt that was one of the most horrific things that had happened. And then the question is, well, what is it that you do? So I felt that as, as a witness in history that I wanted to do something. And so that's why I went to the service the first time. With this recent sort of spike in anti-Semitism, 
I'm now trying to organize and plan a worship service in March. And my thought is, is that just as the Jewish community has always been there for the black community, like in the civil rights movement and beyond, I'd like the, the black community to be behind the, the Jewish community as they go through this uh, peak of anti-Semitism. Man, God bless you. That is amazing. Ed Gaskin, thank you so much. And thank you for being such a thoughtful and active ally for our community. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Mazel Tovs. Liel, have you a Mazel Tov this week? I have a very special Mazel Tov for super fans, great listeners, friends of the show, Matt and Matilda Sheeran, who announce on Facebook, as one does these days, that they're expecting their first child. Bashatova. Bashatova. That's amazing. This is after the, the babka, the first babka they made for Correct. us at our Chicago so live show. We're, we're very... Uh, <laughs> they we're decided looking, they could do that. They could do anything. We're looking forward to welcoming uh, young... Liel, Mark, Stephanie, Sheeran into this world. Or Ed Stephanie, Sheeran. Mark, Liel, That's right. Sheeran, if it's the other way around. <laughs> I have a, uh, a similar Mazel Tov, but the challah that I'm Mazel Toving is fully baked. Emma Green and Michael Schulson announced the birth of their son last Wait, week. she had ah. a baby? She's been writing like 17 articles a week right. at The Atlantic. Yeah, no, she... <laughs> Who's covering anti-Semitism while she's on maternity leave? <laughs> Michael and Emma have a new baby boy. The bris is later this week. I hope to be able to defeat New York traffic for an early morning bris and make it in, but whether the I'm there or not... Is Deborah Lipstadt Green. <laughs> Whether I'm there or not, uh, little Sholem Alechem Deborah Lipstadt Green will receive his ritual cutting and be welcomed into the covenant. And we're so, so, so happy for the Greensons. I have a Mazel Tov in from cousin Janet Slifer, Grandpa Al's niece, and an all-star unorthodox listener. I want to welcome Rabbi Ari and Gila Eisenberg to Congregation B'nai Israel in Milburn, New Jersey. This is Janet Slifer's synagogue. Represent. They just accepted the job and pivotal to getting the offer, I think, was the fact that they are unorthodox listeners. So I bet that came up. The, the search committee asked, what podcast do you listen to? And they said unorthodox, and they were like, you're in. Yeah, rabbis, take take notice. <laughs> so I guess we all have to go to Milburn um, to go to Congregation B'nai Israel to, to meet them in person. Looking forward. I guess we do. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts, unorthodox at tabletmag.com, or call us, 914-570-4869. You know that newsletter we talk about? It's written by our own Liel Bencion Shlomo Davidovich Leibowitz. Indeed. It is a weekly missive very, very good newsletter. from the deep recesses of his brain. If you want that newsletter, go to bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Sign up for it. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross. That's Cross with a K. Cross at tabletmag.com. If you don't have your unorthodox sweatshirt or onesie yet, if you're a little, you should get a onesie. If you're big, you should get a sweatshirt. We also have other stuff. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. We're on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast, on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Ilana Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by a whole team of rabbinic supervisors. Rabbi Ruben Toff of the Mosaic Law Congregation of Sacramento. I just love the name of that congregation. I actually think he's given supervision before, and we keep inviting him back because it's the Mosaic Law Congregation. Also, rabbinic intern Rebecca hacked of Hebrew Tabernacle Congregation in Washington Heights in Manhattan. Oh, I love a good tabernacle. Oh my God. When you're naming your shul after a tabernacle, that is so old school. And then Rabbi Brom David of the William and Charlotte Bloomberg Jewish Community Center of Medford, Massachusetts. He, in fact, is the only rabbi to have been personally endowed by Miami Mike. <laughs> by Miami Mike Bloomberg. We come to you from Argo Studios, which actually aims to be the first Jewish president. Shalom, friends. 
Please. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? I, I, I didn't press anything. It's okay. Just